You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Now let's turn in our Bibles to that psalm we've just been singing, Psalm 120, and uh, we're going to read it together if you're using the church Bible. It is on page 622, I think, and uh, be helpful tonight, at least at the beginning of the exposition, to have a Bible. I want to look at one or two little places near to Psalm 120 to help us grasp uh, what this psalm is about. So, let's hear God's Word, Psalm 120, a song of ascents. I call on the Lord in my distress, and He answers me. Save me, O Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. What will He do to you, and what more besides, O deceitful tongue? He will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows, with burning coals of the broom tree." Woe to me that I dwell in Meshech, that I live among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I am a man of peace, but when I speak, they are for war. This might seem to be a rather unusual psalm to choose as a one-off sermon and that is because it's not a one-off sermon. It's the beginning of a series of sermons that uh, should go on by my calculation for about three to four months, and I want to say something by way of explanation. Um, Series of sermons from Bible books usually begin at chapter 1, And so, it may seem a little strange, quirky, uh, to begin a series at the number 120. And you might well think, well, uh, David Robertson, as uh, I think I've got the system, always preaches on a psalm when it's the Lord's Supper. And so, this series is beginning near the end so that By the time he gets to Psalm 120, it should be, I think, about six or seven years further on, and Ferguson is sure we'll all have forgotten what Ferguson said, and the psalm will be completely fresh. But actually, Psalm 120 is the beginning of a little hymn book within the last of five books into which the Psalter is divided. Uh, Those psalms go from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. And for any of you who are doing higher mathematics during the course of the week, that is how many psalms? Fifteen psalms, 120 to 134. And uniquely in the Psalter, these 15 psalms are all united by the same title. 
You'll see it. Uh, we read it here. We doesn't really sing very well, but we did read it. A song of ascents. And if you glance down through 120 through 134, you will see that exactly that same title is given at the heading of every single one of the Psalms. Now, there is nothing like this anywhere else in the Psalter. And it's fairly clear that as uh, these Psalms, which of course have been inspired by God, but written by individuals, and they didn't fall down from heaven in the order of Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 3, Psalm 4. Somebody at some time collected these psalms together and put them in order. There is a hymn book, uh, I won't mention it by name in order to protect the guilty, but there is a hymn book that lists the hymns in it alphabetically. You could not do anything dumber if you were composing a hymn book, because hymns don't belong together alphabetically. Hymns belong together in terms of themes and structures and biblical emphasis and so on and so forth. And that, I think, is almost certainly true also of the Psalter but it's obviously true of these 15 psalms. They are all called songs of ascents. Why? Answer, we don't know why, so we're making guesses. And uh, I want to suggest to you that I think the best guess, this is not unique to me, you can check that out. I think the best guess of interpreting this little phrase, a song of a sense, is that this was brought together by somebody in order that pilgrims going to Jerusalem, as the people of God did several times a year, that they would have songs to sing during that pilgrimage that would encourage them on the pilgrimage and in a sense, as they made the ascent to Jerusalem. Now, this is a difference between the Scots and the English, isn't it? If I go to London, I go down to London. If you're English, you go up to London. And it was the same with Jerusalem. No matter where you lived, you always went up to Jerusalem. And there are little indications, I think, in these psalms that they fit in with the whole experience of going on a, a pilgrimage, a pilgrimage that was, of course, geographical, but also a pilgrimage that was spiritual. The whole point of the pilgrimage was to draw nearer to the Lord and to be refreshed as you went to Jerusalem and to be able to return to the place of your residence, encouraged and strengthened. In the old days when there used to be hymn books, uh, the great Keswick Convention in England, which was and still is held every summer, had a hymn book of its own, the Keswick Hymn Book. You can probably find it on eBay. might be 600 pounds for all I know, but you'll be able to find it on eBay. And it was selected out of uh, all the hymns of the church as hymns that would be appropriate 
to the kind of spiritual experience and encouragement God's people would have when on this annual occasion, under no obligation to come, they would gather together in the Lake District. Even those from London would go up to Keswick Convention in the Lake District and gather together like a conference. And it seems to me there are indications that we'll notice as we go through these 15 Psalms, both of the geographical experience, but also of the spiritual experience, of the things that come out of our hearts when God begins to deal with us in the fellowship of His people, and we are placed perhaps in a more intensive way than usual among His people, under the ministry of His Word, singing His praises, having time for personal reflection. most obvious instance of that actually is in the next psalm, Psalm 121, and you all know how it begins. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where's my help going to come from? And he's looking to the hills, which in those days were places of considerable danger, He's thinking about going on pilgrimage, and he's actually wondering about what the experience is going to be like. And as I say, there are several indications, I think, both of geographical pilgrimage and what is particularly relevant for us, of course, indications of spiritual pilgrimage. That would be the connection, the obvious connection between these Psalms and my life, because the New Testament indicates to us in a variety of ways that as Christians, we are pilgrims. Think of uh, that great book by John Bunyan in the 17th century, Pilgrim's Progress. It's a description of the Christian life. It may be possible to get into heaven without ever reading the pilgrim's progress. But if I were you, I wouldn't take that chance. You will find yourself there in pilgrim's progress. And in the same way as we receive these psalms, as we have sometimes said, as we remember that this was the Lord Jesus' prayer book and praise book, we discover that this Word of God has very powerful relevance for us so many years after these psalms were written. There are 15 of them. Why are there 15? Answer, because there are not 14 and there are not 16. Perhaps there are some very interesting little designs in these 15 psalms. For example, the middle psalm, the middle psalm, anyone know what the middle is between 120 and 134? The middle psalm is the only psalm of Solomon, and it stands right in the middle. And on either side of that song, that psalm of Solomon, there are seven psalms two on each side, written by David. And the others, possibly for all I know, put in here by the compiler. 
to make up a richer and fuller description of the spiritual experience of the pilgrim and the pilgrimage. Now, why are there 15? The fact that there's one psalm by Solomon, two psalms on each side by David, are you still with me? That's five psalms. That means there are ten psalms that somebody else has composed. Is that just because he could only, you know, I think I've got ten psalms in me, or because he could only find ten psalms? No, I think there's probably a reason. You know, the Jewish tradition, very interested in numbers and patterns and designs, and the more you know the Old Testament, you can see that in the Old Testament. I think there probably is a pattern here. But what is the pattern? Nobody knows. He doesn't tell us. Here is my best guess. The greatest word that a Jewish believer ever heard from the Old Testament Scriptures was what we call the Aaronic benediction. We often use it. Uh, was used this morning as the benediction at the end of the service, the Lord bless you and keep you. Sometimes sing it at baptisms and on other occasions. Those words would have been embedded in the minds of every single pilgrim who used this hymn book. And if my arithmetic stretches properly, and Will is probably sitting there with his little Hebrew Old Testament on his cell phone, and uh, he'll let me know later on if my arithmetic is wrong, I'm pretty certain there are 15 words in Hebrew in the Aaronic benediction. So, have I spent the last week scouring the Old Testament for a verse that's got 15 words in it? No. What is rather remarkable about these 15 Psalms, think going to the temple, going to the place where the high priest would pronounce the Aaronic benediction, the absolute climax of spiritual experience, these 15 Psalms are peppered or punctuated with the language of the Aaronic blessing, peppered with the idea of the peace of the believer, sprinkled with the idea of the graciousness of the Lord, marked by the idea that it is the Lord who is our keeper. The Lord bless you and keep you and also punctuated by the notion that what we are going to Jerusalem for, what we long for in our spiritual pilgrimage, is to live our lives under the blessing of God. That is what ultimately the Christian life is about. It's about tasting and experiencing and enjoying and being strengthened by the blessing of God. That is to say, the expression of all of His desires to do good to us and to transform us and to enable us to live whatever our circumstances may be in the context of His peace. Remember how Paul gives us his own version of the ironic blessing in Ephesians chapter 1 that because we have been chosen in Christ, He has 
blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And here, this 120th Psalm, this is the Psalm for before you even start out. This is the Psalm to help you to meditate on your situation, and meditating on your situation to long all the more for the benediction of God and to be energized to go. You, you imagine someone has invited you to, let's say, the Keswick Convention, and the week beforehand, everything goes wrong. The Christian life is such a struggle. You get discouraged, and you get depressed, and uh, you think, I don't think I'll bother going. And then you reflect on your situation. This isn't, incidentally, an advert for the Keswick Convention and you say, you know, I think I need to go. That's a great principle, incidentally. You know, uh, so many people make the enormous mistake of saying, I don't really feel like going to church today. But you see, if you don't drag yourself to church, then you're not going to experience the blessing that God might give you there. That's the point. And so, tonight we're drawn in very simply to what he is to say about where he is in his spiritual life. And so, he begins with a little description of his situation. I think we can put it like this. Spiritually, he feels like an alien resident. He belongs he has a right to be here, wherever he is, but so many things in his circumstances have made him feel he doesn't really belong. Now, he puts that, I think, by using two picture words or metaphors. Uh, you will notice them in verse 5. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshach, that I live among the tents of Kedar now. You know, where on earth are these places? Does he have two homes? Well, the interesting thing is, he says, this is where I live. But one of those places is southeast of the Black Sea. So, that's a way up there somewhere. And the other place is between Egypt and Edom. So, that's a way down there somewhere. And so, he's using these, these well-known places as metaphors, as pictures of what it feels like to live here. Um, you, you visited somebody last week. They had 19 children. You went home, and uh, your wife or your friend said to you, what was it like? You said it was pure bedlam. Pure bedlam. But bedlam was a hospital, Bethlehem Hospital in London, begun in the Middle Ages, for the insane. That's where that language comes from. So, if I said to you, did you fly to London? You would say, oh, no, you've misunderstood. I'm using bedlam as a picture of the experience to help you feel and imagine what it was like. I don't know what the equivalent in Dundee is, you know, but there's bound to be an equivalent. When I was growing up, uh, it would be, I'm a Glaswegian, it would be, it was like being in the garbles, 
or if you were in Edinburgh and Raplock or one of these places, it's, it's, it's language everybody apparently recognizes for a place where things are spiritually turned against believers. These are pagan places, wild places. And the fascinating thing is it looks as though he, although he is living in the land of promise, even among professing, believing people, he feels as though his situation is one that is inimical, hostile to living a life that glorifies God and finds encouragement. That some of you here in this room tonight are, I presume, alien residents. You don't look alien, but you are from somewhere else. Most of you know I've lived many years in the United States, and people would often say to me there, what are the differences between Scotland and the United States? Can you could you just list the differences? And my standard response was to say, I can't possibly list the differences because everything is just different. Every last thing is different. You know, if you go to Disney World and visit it or some, another country and visit it, you, somebody shows you around, you have a great time, you actually have no idea what it's like to live in that place where everything is different. That's why people have culture shock. That's why missionary societies put a lot of effort into helping people go somewhere else, semi-prepared, and then a lot of effort into bringing them back to a different culture where they're going to go through what used to be called reverse culture shock. And he's saying, where I live, that's what it's like. Absolutely everything about my life at every single point of my life as a believer, it's different from those who are not believers. And he's living in a time and in a place where that has turned into a certain level of hostility. And so he says, in this situation, he says, in the very first verse, I'm calling on the Lord because I am in distress. Now, what he's, what he's uh, saying is that you, you find yourself in a situation where there is such an antipathy to the life of Christ that you feel almost claustrophobic. You're in a situation where you think there is nobody in this room who is going to stand with me and the doors close around you, and the people get near to you. And it doesn't matter what you do or what you say, you know that anything you do that is for the honor of the Lord Jesus or say that will speak well of Him is going to evoke hostility from them. And that's the situation. I'm sure my experience as a minister is no different from other people's experiences as a minister, but on occasion, I may have taken a funeral for some distant relative of some family member in a church and turned up for the service and realized I was in a bricked-in room. And I've thought you can sense it in the atmosphere, especially on such occasions. I'm on my own here. 
There is going to be no lift here, no hope here of the gospel. We've all been in this situation. Some of you may be in this situation just now. Where you are, where you work, in your neighborhood, where you live, perhaps even in your family, where you are conscious of the claustrophobic opposition just to what you are as a Christian believer. And that's the situation in which he finds himself. Same language, I think, very picturesquely used by Jonah when he's down there uh, near the bottom of the Mediterranean in the belly of the great fish, and he calls to the Lord out of his distress. Uh, You know, there was no evening service in the belly of the great fish. There was no morning service in the belly of the great fish. There was nobody to help him. He was on his own, and there seemed to be no way out. Sometimes as believers, we're in precisely that situation. It evokes the same response. We we can desperately call out to the Lord, and that's the situation in which He is before, before He actually steps out the door to join the friends on the pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and He's probably very tempted to just give up the whole thing because he can't see any light ahead at the end of the tunnel. Now, one of the things one needs to say in this connection is that's an authentic spiritual experience of God's people, and we need to understand it. There may be occasions like the disciples in the boat where they found themselves in distress and thought there was no way out, and that's where He is. And in the strange providences of God, that's sometimes where Christian believers are too. Now, in that situation, the thing He focuses most attention on is the opposition that He experiences. And He's quite specific about what is distressing Him. You'll see it in uh, verses 2 and 3. He's in distress, but what kind of distress? Well, he tells us by the way in which he prays to be rescued from this distress, save me, O Lord, in particular, from lying lips and a deceitful tongue. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Uh, He's not experiencing physical persecution. So, these are words that come home to us. And actually, by and large, in the world in which we live here and now, here and now, whatever happens in the future, this is the way in which opposition manifests itself. It manifests itself by the hearts of those who are antagonistic to Jesus Christ, expressing that antagonism through their lips. Now, if you're my generation, uh, you remember that the great struggle for the church in the 1950s was where people were so apathetic. I remember hearing those words when I was a young Christian. The problem is people, we try and communicate the gospel to people, and they are so apathetic. They are so disinterested. That's not similarly the case today, is it? We are much nearer this today 
than we were in my youth. Uh, the prime minister naively makes some general comment about this is a Christian nation, and uh, the opposition pours out the usual suspects, the intelligentsia and the leaders in the arts, and they are no longer just shrugging their shoulders and saying, well, who cares? No, they are putting pen to paper or finger to computer and uh, shooting their arrows, and it's the same in every context in life, isn't it? Whereas a number of years ago, people would just shrug their shoulders and be apathetic, uh, and some, of course, have the kind of odd, perverted courage to speak out against Christ. That's one of the new things of our generation. People used to never dare speak out against Jesus, never dare speak out against Jesus. But it's now Muhammad they wouldn't dare speak out against. And they're quite happy to speak out against Jesus and anyone who is connected to Jesus. And we're living in a time and in a situation where simply to mention his name. You know, as a young minister, I asked my first boss in 1971, what do I wear? He looked at me as though I'd come from the moon, his clerical collar. I could walk down Buchanan Street in Glasgow. Our church was in the middle of Buchanan Street in Glasgow. I could walk down Buchanan Street as a boy minister, 23 years old, one of these collars around my neck, and look people in the eye, and they would avert their gaze, many of them in embarrassment and shame. You do that now, you're likely to have your head bashed against the wall, aren't you? Who are you looking at? Strange transformation from apparent sense of guilt that I, I really should be living for God to now a much more open and vigorous and verbal reaction. And uh, I have no doubt in university, college, uh, wherever you are, uh, that's, that's, that's not a strange experience to you. Uh, that's what makes you wonder if you've the courage for the pilgrimage. That's what he's thinking about, to have the courage for the pilgrimage when this is what it's like, where there is this kind of antagonism against him. And he summarizes this in a very interesting way right at the end of the psalm, doesn't he? He says, I am a man of peace. That kind of plays out what he actually says. It's he's just really saying, I'm, I'm peace, but they are for war. Now, he's not saying it's Christmas every day in my life, you know. Every wretched Christmas, the famous ones are asked, what, what's your desire this Christmas? Oh, I wish we would all be at peace. No, this is Shalom. This is the ironic benediction, the Lord bless you and keep you and make His face shine on you and lift up His countenance and smile towards you and give you shalom. And shalom is the blessedness and the stability and the joy of living in the Lord's presence and living for the Lord's glory and living faithfully and in detail 
in order to follow the Lord's revealed purposes for your life in Scripture. And you see, when that pops out, this isn't just happy Christmas. We didn't get on very well this year, but I'm wishing you a happy Christmas. May you have a peaceful Christmas slumbering over your plum pudding. No, no, no. This is for, remember how the New Testament says, Jesus Christ is our peace. And then all hell breaks loose, and they are for war. And it's all verbal. It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, my generation, you'd come home, somebody bullied you at school, son, sticks and stones will break your bones, but names will never hurt you. And you thought to yourself, did nobody ever badmouth you, mother? I'm aching inside. It's horrible to be demeaned. And the same as we grow up, isn't it? Um, if my experience is anything to go by, there are fewer things more painful than what he speaks about here. That is lying lips and deceitful tongues, lips that malign you by what they say and lips that deceive you by what they say to you, lips that malign you by what they say about you to others, and lips that deceive you. That's why uh, we should never be taken in by read my lips. We should intellectually, mentally, in here be thinking, I hear your lips, but I'm listening to your heart, and I'm detecting there is a distance between your heart and your lips, and you're a deceiver. And it's in these ways that the Christian man or woman or young person finds distress of people maligning your reputation. Uh, do you remember how Jesus says you can kill somebody with your words? They just stab them. We actually use that language, don't you? Stab me in the back by what he said. And that's what's happening to him. And the, the amazing thing is, he is for peace. He is for God. He is for the Lord's kingdom. He is for the blessing of people. He's reaching out to the needy and to the poor. If he's like any of the other psalmists, he cares about people. He turns the other cheek. He is for shalom. Ah, but you see, that's what is so much of an irritant to the ungodly heart and it shouldn't surprise us. I think that's perhaps the big message. Actually, I think it's where he ends the psalm. I realize this shouldn't surprise me. Remember how Peter puts it? He says, uh, find yourself in the fiery trial. Don't be surprised. Why not? For this simple reason. Think about the Lord Jesus and His kingdom the beauty of His teaching about the kingdom, the marvel of His power as its King, transforming and restoring broken lives, the loveliness of His own character as the King in the kingdom of God. What is the, 
what is the climax of all that? It's this, we will not have this man to reign over us. And if, as C.S. Lewis says, you're going to stand near the prince, you need to be prepared for the arrows of the archers to strike at you. And, you know, one of the, one of the temptations, one of the mistakes we can sometimes make in these situations is think, why, why are all these strange things happening to me? And the Bible's answer is they're not strange at all. If you just look at your Lord Jesus, and if you're, if you're close to the Lord Jesus, then you need to expect that these things will happen, and you need to make the connection, because it's so easy. This is, this is where the deceitfulness comes in. It's so easy to take all this to yourself and to be isolated and then to become withdrawn instead of, ah, now I understand why this is happening. It's because I belong to Him. And paradoxically, they think they are destroying me. But in effect, what they are doing is pressing me closer to the Lord Jesus and giving me some sense that if I'm experiencing this, there must be something about my life that actually reminds them of the Lord Jesus, and it's against Him that their hostility is directed. And that's what he's saying, isn't he? So, he speaks about his situation, and he speaks about the opposition. And uh, the third thing I want you to notice is the way in which he speaks about the consolation because uh, this is the… He wouldn't, this psalm would never be in the Bible if all this man had known was simply distress. It's in the Bible because somehow or another this man discovered the consolation that would keep him going on the pilgrimage. And uh, what's that consolation? Well, it's, it's interesting. I'm… Uh, I'm struck by the fact that when the Bible is translated into English, we always tend to put it the way we would put it. And so, if you've got the NIV, it's in verse 1, I call on the Lord in my distress. Or if you've got the ESV, which is the Bible in my gray cells, it is in my distress I called to the Lord. Now, see the difference in the order? NIV, I call, ESV, in my distress. In terms of the order of the Hebrew, neither of them is right. It's kind of interesting. What the psalmist actually writes, first of all, is on the Lord. And I think by translating it this way, the translators may just have missed something quite important, that his eyes are not on his distress exclusively. His heart is not just calling out, 
But what has begun to fill his horizon, and the reason he says at the beginning, I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me, and then he goes on to describe what the distress was, the reason he has the Lord at the beginning is because when his eyes were fixed on the Lord, the distress that was real was cut down to its proper size. I don't think I have any money on me, but uh, I often think, you know, I take the smallest coin in my pocket, and if I bring it near enough to my eyes, you know, a couple of cucumbers on my eyes, I wouldn't be able to see an elephant. And sometimes distress can be just like that. All I see is the distress. All I see is these people, and they are giants. And if I lie awake at night thinking about them, they are seven feet tall, and I get smaller and smaller and smaller. And he's really saying there's only one way to deal with this. And the way to deal with this is to have the Lord front and center in your vision. And when you see Him and His greatness and His majesty, then all of these things, sore though they will remain, are reduced to proper proportions. And it's in that light that he says this very interesting thing, doesn't he, in the, in the fourth verse. Verse 3, what will be what will he do to you, and what more besides, O oh, deceitful tongue? Now, notice he's saying, what's God going to do? That's really important. What you're going to do is almost irrelevant. Forget about what you're going to do. The big thing is what God is going to do. He will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows. What that's really saying is, God's justice is absolutely perfect. His justice is so finely tuned. It's like a, a skilled warrior's arrow flashing into the beast that the hunter is pursuing, and getting that arrow within that very small area of that animal's body that will bring the animal down instantaneously. And he says he'll do this with burning coals of the broom tree. What's the principle here? It's a very simple principle. Is that uh, God is not himself in a panic about the power of the most evil men. Remember how that was true for the psalmist in Psalm 73? He's just all of a tizzy because here he is seeking to live the godly life, and so many things are going wrong. And he looks round at other people, and they're prospering, and nothing seems to happen. And they recognize that nothing happens. You speak about the judgment of God, and uh, where is the judgment of God? We can sin as we please. There is no divine judgment. And then he says, I went into the temple of God, and I, I saw their end. I saw they would come under the judgment of God. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 12 at the end. 
He says, you know, when everything seems to be against you, you can have the most enormous poise simply by understanding. My eyes are on the Lord, and these men and women are small in His sight and now in mine, and His judgment will take care of absolutely everything. It was Jesus that taught us that. Jesus taught us men and women will give account for every single loose word they speak. And He's grasped it, you see. And I think that's why the psalm ends the way it ends. It seems to be a bit of a downer, doesn't it? The end of the day, I'm for peace and they're for war. Ah, but you see, he understands. Remember what I said about Genesis 3.15? It determines everything that happens right to the end of the Bible. There is a perpetual conflict between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And if you're going to make the pilgrimage to the end, you need to understand that's the way it is. This is the way it is. That will clear up so many difficulties. That will stop you fretting. That will keep you stable. This is how it is because God is who He is because Christ has done what He has done, and the clearer His grace and glory shine, the more the opposition will emerge. And so He is for shalom and therefore war. Now, put these words into the heart and mind of the Lord Jesus. Exactly. You understand Him better. This was His life. He was for shalom big time. And they were for war to destroy Him. And that means, my dear brothers and sisters, at the very least, He understands exactly what you're going through, and what you're going through will draw you nearer to Him to be able to say, Lord Jesus, did you go through this for poor me? And yes, worse, I rejoice that I am counted worthy, therefore, to suffer for your sake, and I'm going to stay on the pilgrimage. Maybe you're in a situation where you're wondering whether you're going to stay on the pilgrimage. You need to realize this is the way it is. Jesus never soft-pedaled what it meant to be His disciple. And you need to understand that your God is far bigger than those who oppose you. And you need to grasp that the Lord Jesus has been there and done that and more, and He will see you through and bring you on in the pilgrimage. Well, some of us will be exactly here this week, perhaps quite unexpectedly. We need to have the Lord before our gaze. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word and for the way in which the the Word of God that so often speaks to us, so often in the Psalms, also speaks for us so that we can listen to You speaking to us in return. We pray for one another. 
We pray especially for any who are going through times of enormous pressure, perhaps even opposition, wondering if they can still go on. We pray that in the light of Your Word, we may see our situations all the more clearly, and even better, see our Lord Jesus Christ, not only clearly, but near to us, with us, understanding us, sharing our life, and bringing us through. So, bless us, we pray. Keep us in a loving, prayerful fellowship, even when we are apart from one another. And bless those particularly who live in experiences of great distress. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.